Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're looking at uh, an area of uh, North America that is doing innovative things when it comes to healthcare, reconnecting us with indigenous roots and really tapping into indigenous wisdom. Many of you have heard of the South Central Foundation in Alaska. We're pleased to have April Kyle with us, who's the president and CEO of that organization. April, it's great to have you with us today. Good morning, David. Great to be here. I know you're a person who's got a lot of responsibilities. We've been working for a number of months to try to line up this interview. We so appreciate you taking time away from your busy schedule to join us. I'm glad that it worked out. Alaska's having its first big snowstorm this morning, so made it to work on time despite about a foot, sometimes two feet of snow, different places across town. Wow. Wow. It's a beautiful part of the continent. I've had the privilege of being up in your neck of the woods. In fact, uh, we were up there for a National Indian Health Board event uh, earlier this year. We're actually recording this program for those of you tuning in in November of 2023. And um, April, before we dive too far into things, a lot of people, when I mentioned South Central Foundation and April Kyle, I mean, they immediately know who we're talking about, what we're talking about. But for those who are not familiar with you and the organization you represent, first, you. I mean, who are you and how did you get involved with this uh, organization in Alaska? Sure, David. Happy to introduce myself a little bit. Um, my name is April Kyle. I have been with SCF for 20 years. I've been in this role, President CEO, for three years. Before this role, I led our Behavioral Services Division. And if you go back a little farther in time, when I was a kid, um, myself, my family went to the old Indian Health Service Hospital in downtown Anchorage. Mm -hmm. And so I experienced our healthcare system before self-determination. And while SCF has been doing this for 40 years, have been part of the journey of Alaska Native people in our region for the past 20 uh, rethinking what healthcare can be when it's led by community and aimed at meeting community's needs. I have heard so many wonderful stories. We have featured some people in the past who are connected with South Central Foundation, but I always get a lot of enthusiasm from folks. And these are not just people who have indigenous roots. I can remember talking with a health professional who had heard about your organization some years ago and went up to some conference that you were hosting and just came back all excited saying, oh, this NUCA system of care, I mean, this is amazing. Tell us a little bit about why people are so excited about what's happening up there. So I think there's a couple ways you can look at it. Early in our journey, of course, we were looking for healthcare to be significantly different than what we received in the old IHS model, right? Um, and as we have thought differently about what wellness really means and how to organize an institution of healthcare so that it's led by community, um, we've moved past the comparison of what we're doing since IHS days 
and have really become a leader in innovation in the country, sort of Alaska Native people doing things really creative that others want to look at. And you mentioned, uh, I know you were up for NIHB recently. Um, you mentioned our conference. Um, we have enough interest in what we're doing that we're trying to organize people coming at once. We have a conference every year in June, which is a beautiful time in Alaska. And interestingly, most of our attendees are from other countries. Uh, mm. People thinking about population health and community wellness kind of at a big scale and looking at uh, South Central Foundation and our NUCA system of care as a model. So help us understand NUCA. I mean, for folks who are Alaska Natives, that term might mean something, but for Many of my listeners, I mean, it may sound like an intriguing name, but where did you come up with uh, the word Nuka and, and what does that signify? Yeah, I'm not sure that the name is the most important part of it, but the word Nuka is an Alaska Native word. It uh, tends to mean things that are big or living or strong. Um, for us, what we're doing in imagining healthcare delivery, we think is uh, you know, significantly different from what is typical in the U.S. healthcare model. And so kind of saying that and putting words to it um, is important. And David, I'd love to share a little bit about kind of our approach and how that approach leads to a different service delivery model. I mean, that's what we're really excited about. So I know there's a lot of listeners, April, just as far as background, and we have people representing, you know, multiple tribes. We have tribal health uh, leaders that tune in. We have folks who are on tribal councils. And I mean, it's an opportunity really to kind of see through your eyes. And, you know, many people, depending on where they're at in their own journey as a tribe, uh, they may be saying, you know, we want to do things a little bit differently. Many of them may already be acquainted with what you're doing. But let's just speak to people as if they know nothing about your approach to care and just kind of start from the, the ground up and explain how you went about structuring things and the kind of impact that it's having. Sure, I'm happy to do that. And I'll just start by saying that there are amazing things happening um, led by communities through self-determination across the country. Um, SCF is just one example of what self-determination can create. And so I love learning about what other systems are doing, and I'm happy to share a little bit about what our system looks like. Um, some folks are probably familiar with the Alaska tribal health system up here, and some folks might not be. So I'll share first, what is the Alaska tribal health system and who is South Central Foundation in that system? So in Alaska, um, we have a single compact. So everyone came together and decided that we were going to agree on how to organize our healthcare system. And we devised a regionalized system so that every region has a regional tribal health organization. And then in that region, they have a hub communities, sub-regional clinics, village clinics, and a flow of how services work sort of within their region. So South Central Foundation is one of those regions. We're a regional tribal health organization. Our region is the South Central area of the state, which sort of makes sense given our name. Mm -hmm. um, in our in our service area, we have 70,000 Alaska Native and Native American people. We serve all of the people who are Alaska Native, Native American who live in our region, regardless of their tribal affiliation. Our hub community is in Anchorage, which is the big city, right, in Alaska. And we have a second hub community in the Matsu Valley. And we have 55 federally recognized tribes in our region. 
in some of those smaller communities, the local tribe operates its own healthcare clinic. We provide regional support. And in some locations, we are the operator. And in those places, the local tribe will partner with us and appoint a health council. And that health council is made up of tribal members who become sort of the on-the-ground health advisory committee governance of what their local healthcare delivery system looks like. In addition to being a regional healthcare provider, one of the unique things about South Central Foundation, if you're looking at Alaska's tribal health system, is that in addition to each region designing a healthcare system to meet its region's needs and thinking about their population and economies of scale, some regions have um, just primary care, some have specialty, some have hospitals. Um, there was also a need to have a centralized hospital that would serve as the referral source for the entire state. And if you're going to have a centralized statewide service in Alaska and you have a regionalized system, it's going to happen to sit in someone's region, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the centralized place in Alaska is Anchorage. And so we knew that in Anchorage, there were going to be two things. There was going to be a statewide service and a regional service. And in figuring out how to do that, um, there's a federal law called Section 325 that did two things. It created um, our partner organization, the Alaska Native Tribal Health Organization, and ANTHC's job is to um, support all the regions and be the referral and centralized statewide services. And South Central Foundation and ANTHC are tasked with co-managing what's called the Alaska Native Medical Center. So I am Zooming from ANMC today. I'm on the Alaska Native Medical Center. Um, the Alaska Native Medical Center in Anchorage is just a beautiful location, um, and it serves both as the um, local regional hospital and services and also the statewide hospital for the tribal health system. Okay, so that's a great overview of how things are organized there. And I know a lot of folks, when they hear about uh, Alaska tribal organizations, they hear about these corporations and they their eyes kind of glaze over if they're not familiar with that terminology. You want to bring us up to speed about uh, that uh, designation? Sure, I can speak to that just a little bit. Our sort of legal structure in Alaska came about with ANCSA, which created um, a combination of both federally recognized tribes, regional corporations, and tribal level corporations. And it is different than the lower 48. It's the structure that we sort of ended up with legally. And our job is to use that structure to create kind of our model of self-determination and make sure that we're supporting wellness for our community. So I am a Nanelchik tribal member. I am a Nanelchik shareholder and I am a Siri Cook Inlet region shareholder, which is the region that South Central foundation sits in. Okay. So uh, if that hasn't helped us feel a little bit more comfortable with the terminology, at least uh, we've been exposed to it. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about this, April, because, you know, we're talking about this whole system of care that Indigenous people have developed in Alaska and how your organization plays a part in that. So take us back uh, before you were even with the organization, you know, some 40 years to its roots, and what kind of principles guided in this whole process? Sure. So 40 years ago, 
with the passage of the Indian Self-Determination Act, South Central Foundation began um, contracting small things, a little bit of dental, behavioral health, optometry. Um, and then the big change happened in the 90s. So in the 90s, um, uh, there was a new um, hospital build, a new tribal hospital build with a plan that by the end of the 90s, it would transition from IHS to tribal operations following that partnership SCF ANTHC model that I described before. So that's the timeline when we experienced rapid growth and got to fully operate the healthcare system for our region. Few things that sort of grounded us as we thought about what healthcare should be. The first is that our leaders at the time were, I think, really brave in wanting to do whole system transformation. Mm. And when you look at what happens in healthcare, you see a lot of innovation that's really sort of tinkering around the edges, sort of changing what we have. And SCF sort of walked away from the medical care paradigm that we had been used to as Alaska Native people and decided that we were willing to design something that would be very different. Um, to do that, our leaders began asking the community, what do you want out of your healthcare system? And um, we did that as a formal study. We asked elders, people in waiting rooms, people working in the old system. Um, we had focus groups and surveys, and we, we heard from community. And we landed kind of a few foundational principles that would guide how we create our healthcare system. So the first is that um, our vision was going to be about multidimensional wellness. So we believe that each of us, um, even as you're listening to this podcast right now, if you just sit in yourself for a minute, you can feel a balance of your physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual wellness. Mm -hmm. And that those things are not separate, right? They're not different body parts that interact or separate from each other. They're actually connected. And um, that means that things like emotional wellness, mental health, spiritual wellness, physical health have to be part of every part of our system. So we wouldn't say, oh, don't worry, we have behavioral health for that one uncle in your family, and it's in that building over there. We would say that this needs to be part of everything we do in our system delivery. Love that picture. We, we want to develop that a little bit more. We do have to step away just briefly, April. You're listening to April Kyle. She is the president and CEO of the South Central Foundation. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We'll be coming back with more on today's edition of the broadcast right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid. But there is hope. Reach out to someone. Connect with your friends. Stay in touch with your community. And know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My guest is April Kyle. She is the president and CEO of the South Central Foundation, She's joining me from Anchorage, Alaska, and we are speaking about the uh, South Central Foundation, its roots, and really what it's doing to uh, impact care not only among First Nations peoples in Alaska, but really impacting people throughout the world because of their uh, innovative system of care. We were speaking, April, before we had to step away about looking at people holistically, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and how... um, from an indigenous perspective, this has always been every tribe that I speak with. And this is something part and parcel. And yet we talk about the history of healthcare in America, very much this focus on what a lot of people have called disease care and especially focused, uh, you know, just on those, those physical pathologies, if you will. So your leadership there in Alaska as they came together 40 years ago and then more recently in the 90s, they're rethinking this whole approach. So you've been carrying us along in that process, and I know there's some major developments, major changes in approach. So how do we best get a feel for just the very different direction that the visionaries took in Alaska? Sure. I'll start by sharing that we consider our orientation to community to be very different than U.S. healthcare. So our healthcare system is owned by our community. And I don't know that a lot of places have figured out what does it mean to be a community-owned system? How do you figure out how to do that? 
And healthcare is uh, typically an industry of hierarchy, right? Mm. So the people with the doctors in front of their names and the initials behind their names and the positions of power uh, tend to think they know what's best and they design systems and community comes in and they are patients, right? And they're expected to just be in a recipient role. And SCF is looking to intentionally push against that hierarchy to really challenge where power sits and to create a new paradigm where we sit in relationship with community. So we embrace this idea of relationship and aim for the product of our healthcare system. The thing we look to produce should not be diagnosis or treatment plans or prescriptions. The thing we work to produce is the quality of relationships that we can sit in at a macro level between healthcare system and community and at a micro level between every care team. So a primary care team and addiction care team and the customer owner or family who comes in for that service today. Um, some ways we do that include changing our language. So we think mm -hmm. this term patient that's used in healthcare puts people in a recipient role. It reinforces power and hierarchy. And so for us, when we refer to a person who comes in today, we call them our customer owner in order to really acknowledge their ownership role in this healthcare system. I love what you're sharing. We've seen this over a number of decades, even in conventional medical systems, you know, where people are passive recipients. Their outcomes are not as good as when people uh, are engaged in the whole process. That's even with a disease care model. And you're taking that a whole step further as an organization, as a community. So help us get a feel then for maybe, I know this whole aspect of community ownership, a lot of people hear it, they say, yeah, well, this sounds good, but what does that really mean? How does that translate into things being different? Sure. So a couple things. One, that we have 2,700 employees, and we expect that the thing we're good at as a workforce and individually as employees is being a real human in real relationships with the people that we interact with every day. And that may sound really simple, but U.S. healthcare, the way we're trained and taught to deliver services, includes this, I have the white coat and I sit in the big chair, and you take off your clothes and sit in the, in the paper thing over here on something that looks like a bed, and it's just this hierarchy and power structure. We want to dismantle that. And the core of how we do that I think is really based in culture and it's through the idea of story. Hmm. So we believe that the way relationships really happen between two people is if I have an opportunity and David, I can't do this in a podcast, but really if you and I were together and I shared a part of my heart with you, a part of my story with you, that the, the experiences I've had that impact the lens I have in this conversation and I'm genuine, and you receive that in a healthy way, and you share with me really about you, right, about what your intention is, about what's hard for you, that sharing of story is how relationship is developed. So if we believe that story is really the heart of relationship, then we want to spend time as a workforce developing that competency. One example of how we do that is a three-day training we call Core Concepts. So I sit with every group of new employees and we spend three days together exploring how we enter relationships, how the history of our people impacts 
our natural relationship with institutions, right? So mm. as people, when you think about big institutions, being skeptical of those <laughs> institutions, right? Hiding from them, not telling them the truth. Those were survival mechanisms, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. How do we change that sort of over time? How do we practice interacting differently with each other and with our customer owners to endeavor to be welcomed into their story, into their real life? What we know about wellness is that wellness doesn't happen in clinical visits. Wellness happens in the choices that we make every day in our life. What did I eat for, for breakfast? What did I drink? Did I take the pill? How do I manage stress? How do I parent? How did I learn to parent? And if we want to influence the choices and behaviors that people have every day in their lives, then we have to build a relationship to be one of their trusted partners. So our goal is that if you're a parent, I'm a mom right now, if I'm stressed and I'm struggling and I think I need to talk to someone, I want to talk to my mom. I want to talk to my friend. I want to talk to the nurse on my primary care team. And we want that relationship to be just as real as the other relationships that you have in your life. So, I mean, all this sounds wonderful. And I think, though, people are saying, but, you know, typically when we talk about healthcare, at least in many circumstances, people don't enter the system until they have a problem. And yeah. really what I'm hearing in this whole approach is we want to have relationships before those problems occur. So the NUCA system of care, how is it proactive in developing those relationships? So I'll start sort of at a, an everyday micro level of relationships between families and care teams. And I'm going to begin with primary care, but we could probably talk more broadly than just primary care. But in primary care, what we're hoping to create is a longitudinal relationship over time with a person in their family. Um, and, and for that to be true with a healthcare system with 2,700 employees, we need for you to have a care team whose names you know, whose phone numbers you have, who you can talk to any day that you want to. So um, each customer owner has four people on their primary care team, their provider, an RN case manager, a CMA, and what we call a case management support, which is an Alaska Native person. And when you call the clinic, you never call the front desk. You don't mm. call some call line. You are calling directly to your community member case management support. And you're saying, hey, I think I might like to come in today. This is what's going on for my family. That team is sitting in an integrated care team space. So there's no doctors are in doctor's lounges and nurses are at nursing stations. They're sitting together. And so the case management support can ask me, April, what's going on for you today? And if it's a med refill, then he might say, hey, can I just catch your provider between appointments and let's see if he really wants you to come in? Or if it's a kiddo that has a fever that's 102, 103, then he might say, hey, let me just see if the nurse sitting next to me can chat with you um, so that you two can have a conversation. We do a whole bunch of our work, not through visits, but through dialogue and conversation. So mm -hmm. this advanced access model, you can reach your care team every day, all day. And if you call in the morning, you're guaranteed an appointment with your team today. Um, we were on the front cover of the New York Times in 1999 when advanced access models were first coming out to think about it. If you're going to be in a relationship with your community, you can't see a different person every time and have this really confusing system to try to access. You need to have a team who you know you can reach. And then what we've tried to do is leverage that relationship that's developed between a primary care team and the panel of customer owners that they have. So 1,100, 1,300 customer owners. 
and deliver as much care as we can in that relationship. So we know when we refer out to specialty, a lot of times people don't get to those referrals, mm -hmm. right? And when they do, and you're meeting somebody for the first time, are you really going to tell them you eat McDonald's every day before work? Mm -hmm. You're not necessarily going to say that because it's mm -hmm. a brand new relationship. Mm -hmm. You're going to be on your best behavior. So rather than referring people out, we want to bring competency to that team. So in primary care for like 19 years now, we've had integrated behavioral health. We have integrated midwives, integrated oh. pharmacists, integrated psychiatry, integrated dietitians, so that that primary care team can pull into that relationship the different members of the teams who might best serve the customer owner right there in that moment. This is a really interesting concept, and I think a lot of people hearing it, uh, even myself, I'm saying, you know, what does this all mean? We want to break that down in our next segment, these integrated care teams. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're speaking with April Kyle. She's with the South Central Foundation, talking about indigenous Alaskans and how they have really uh, reimagined what healthcare can look like, making a huge difference for their people and beyond. Stay tuned. We've got more coming up on today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. DeRose. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's S-A-M-H-S-A dot gov slash support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov slash meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. 
Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back for the second half of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Dr. David DeRose with April Kyle. We are speaking about the South Central Foundation, the Nuka System of Care, and really just exciting things about changing the whole delivery model of, uh, of health care and how that's been impacting First Nations peoples in Alaska. April, we were talking about these care teams, medical assistant, nurse, uh, provider, uh, someone who's a community kind of representative liaison, and how we're trying to, you know, if we see through the eyes of uh, the South Central Foundation, trying to keep all those initial interactions with just those individuals uh, and a powerful model for connection, for relationships. You mentioned this uh, integration of specialty care, and I know one of the areas that's a passion for you and a special need, I mean, regardless of what the demographics are, is behavioral health, such needs in that area uh, among non-Native peoples, among Native peoples, can we use that as an example and give us an idea of, let's say someone has a serious mental health issue, they reach out to the care team, and the care team says, wow, this is a bit more than we can surround. Help us uh, walk through that, if you would, please. Sure, happy to. We began thinking about reframing what primary care means and moving away from primary, really meaning your medical or physical wellness and instead pushing toward the idea that what's primary is this balance, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual wellness. And so integrating behavioral health consultants who are master's level clinicians started almost 20 years ago. Hmm. And those, we have 45 integrated behavioral health consultants. We have them in uh, primary care and lots of other places. And the idea is that if you get in relationship with a dad or a son or a brother, and you start really talking about what matters to them, you're inevitably going to get into some really important and difficult conversations. And the hard part about doing that in a primary care setting in the U.S. is that if you open that conversation, you got to have a resource to provide, right? Do we have mm -hmm. enough time in today's visit to really talk about Sounds like that's not a healthy relationship that you're in. What, you know, how do we move forward with that? So integrating master's level behavioral health clinicians who are part of the primary care team working every day in primary care, doing nothing other than integrated work through a brief intervention model means that um, that primary care team can pull in that behaviorist right now into any visit that they'd like. And so that customer owners are used to the idea of behavioral health being part of primary care, our model includes behaviorists being a compulsory part of certain visits at certain touch points. So when you have a kid and you're doing ages and stages, the behavioral, behavioral health consultant is going to come in and talk to you about how you're doing with your kiddo. I remember one of the times when I had the positive pregnancy test, it was the behavioral health consultant who came in to give me the news because you never cool. know what that moment looks like. And I cheered uh -huh. and gave that BHC a hug and said, happy mom, but glad you're here. And developing those relationships early on means that it becomes more natural for that behaviorist to be pulled in to that care delivery later. After integrating behavioral health consultants, we began playing with integration of psychiatry. 
And that was, oh, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. We, we started with mm -hmm. co-located psychiatry so that you could have psychiatric appointments with the same front end reception areas, primary care. And mm -hmm. we pushed even farther to have integrated psychiatrists who do nothing but case consults and joining care in support of primary care providers. So let me share with you just one specific example, David. If you're a primary care provider and someone's struggling with depression, you might have two or three or four depression meds you're comfortable with. But when those don't work, you feel like you need to refer to specialty psychiatry. But if in your practice, there's an integrated psychiatrist, uh, somebody you know who you've worked with for years, who you can do a case consult with and talk through other options, you're going to feel much more comfortable exploring other options of care delivery within that primary care relationship. And we've seen that since integrating psychiatry, we still have specialty psych. There's still a need for that. But we've mm -hmm. seen a marked decrease in referrals to specialty psychiatry and an increase in the complexity of care that can be delivered through that very important primary care longitudinal relationship. It's great because you're increasing the competency of those primary caregivers as well, aren't you? We are. And I'll just add that we are never going to meet the behavioral health needs of our community by just hiring and building more behavioral health services. Mm -hmm. The real answer is to increase our collective competency of behavioral health and to make mental, emotional, spiritual, physical wellness part of every part of our care delivery. I love the model. And what I hear you saying, if I'm conceptualizing it correctly, is if I'm working with a certain care team, if I have a behavioral health need, I'm going to see a dedicated behaviorist, behavioral health counselor who's going to work with me. It's not going to be someone different. I'm not going to be getting a referral to some panel where I could be seeing one person. My mother might be seeing someone different. If I'm working with that team, it's a single person in general or a couple of people that are working with that team. Have I got that? I think that's exactly right, David. And, and what we have played with is this tension of how much care is appropriate to stay in primary care in that relationship. Mm. And when is the complexity really beyond what primary care can do? So in addition to this really robust primary care system, we've built out a continuum of services so that when we need to refer out, those specialty services are there. So South Central Foundation, for example, our specialty behavioral services division has 550 employees and we're the largest specialty behavioral service provider in the state, second only to the Department of Corrections, which is a little bit uh, sad to say. And one mm -hmm. of the things we've worked to do is make sure that these different parts of our services don't operate as islands, which is what usually happens in U.S. healthcare. Mm -hmm, but instead, mm -hmm. we talk about intentionally building out continuums so that you have services at population size and population access, so that there are service level agreements between primary care and specialty providers, so they know how they communicate with each other, and then pull discharging back to primary care relationship upon conclusion of that specialty need. So, you know, one of the things that's behind all of this, and uh, you and I touched on this off air, is what's really a challenge, I mean, not just with indigenous populations, but populations across the landscape of healthcare, and that is the ability to recruit and retain healthcare providers. I mean, if you're going to have a team that someone is going to feel comfortable with, you've got to keep those people on board 
It seems like that's a challenge in a lot of places, especially in places that are more rural. Now, I know Anchorage to an Alaskan is kind of, you know, maybe the pinnacle of urbanization, but for many people in the lower 48, even Anchorage seems awfully remote. So help us understand that whole process. So I want to just um, just push a little on your question, David. I do think it is essential to have providers in our system who stay with us over time to build relationships. But our healthcare model can't be built around providers alone. And I want to give you mm. an example. Just before COVID, um, we had two primary. So we've worked really hard on the idea of how we understand data as it relates to wellness. So we know that our okay. EHRs are built to share with our payers that they should reimburse us. They don't think about wellness and they don't think about population health. We built a data mall that sits above our EHRs so that we can really understand what our dashboard should be for each primary care team, what mm. outcomes-based measures should look like that that team aims to accomplish together. And um, we set targets um, for those dashboards. And we had two teams before COVID that were all blue. So they were meeting every stretch target. And so we as leaders went to those two teams and said, hey, how are you doing this? And the answer was not the provider. The answer was the Alaska Native case management support. Mm. Both of these were Alaska Native women um, who'd had some life experience. And when you need to talk to somebody about, yeah, 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 I know you don't want a colonoscopy and you said you were busy last month, but let's really get you in. They were just having frank conversations because they had frank and real relationships with the people on their panels. So in my mind, I think we, there's absolutely a time and place for making sure that we are able to recruit and retain providers, but thinking about relationships from a different perspective, how can we imagine people with lived experience, people who are members of our community, people who, you know, maybe being a boat captain is exactly the experience you need to lead a team. Right. How do we bring that mm -hmm. kind of experience into healthcare, and imagine all of us collectively as being part of delivering care? You know, in a lot of places, there's different terms that are used for these people that have the indigenous roots and whether they're called a case manager, whether they're a community partner, navigator. I mean, there's different terms that are used, but it really sounds like as far as that connection with the community, the indigenous uh, person, it may be in a lot of places, and I'm assuming it's true in, in Anchorage, it can be challenging to get those indigenous providers who have kind of a lived experience that the population does. But these other people on the front lines, they not only get it, they've lived it. Am I hearing the yeah. emphasis? I think that's really true, David. And the question is, if you want to bring community members into healthcare to be part of care teams, how do you invest in making that successful? And we've done a bunch of things over time, and I didn't share with you yet that I've been here for 20 years. The first 10 years, I was our director of human resources. So whole workforce is exciting to me. And, and one of the things we did is we looked at the types of jobs we hire and transitioned from a vacancy-based recruitment and hiring model, a deficit-based model. Mm -hmm. So there's a vacancy, and so we're short-staffed, and so we'll post it, and so we'll recruit. And by the time we hire somebody, we just need them to start working because we're behind. Mm -hmm. To predictive vacancy-based recruiting so mm -hmm. that we will know how many administrative support, how many supervisors, how many managers, how many CMAs do we think we'll need in the upcoming year, and in what size of cohorts should we hire them 
And how do we provide them with an upfront training program, mentoring and coaching, and readiness to enter vacancies in an overhire perspective before those vacancies occur? Wow. And so we have dental assistant training program. We are our own chemical dependency counselor training program. We are really invested in helping Alaska Native people see careers in healthcare mm -hmm. and then providing that upfront training so that by the time somebody gets to a department because their vacancy has occurred, they have all the training to do that job successfully. That's so great. We're not 100% perfect at that all the time, but we have lots and lots of uh, training, development, succession planning systems. I love it. We really have to talk about what some people would say is the bottom line, even though we've been, I think, talking about the bottom line, which is relationships and community. But, uh, you know, if you talk about a health system, people are going to say, well, what kind of outcomes are you getting? I mean, it's beautiful to have great relationships, but if this isn't getting the job done, then that's a whole other story. We want to move to that dialogue. Before we do, April, we've got to take a break, but... Before we step away, if someone's trying to get more information about your organization, to learn about what you're doing, is there a single kind of point of contact that you'd like to give us? Yeah, I think that you can just start with our website, southcentralfoundation.com, and look for our NUCA Institute. And that is where we partner and develop relationships with others in the community who are thinking about healthcare in unique ways. Wonderful. We do have to step away. We're going to be back with a final segment with April Kyle. Don't go away. Outcomes from the South Central Foundation. Stay tuned. Dr. DeRose here. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. 
My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our final segment of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Dr. David DeRose with my guest, April Kyle. She's been sharing with us her enthusiasm for an organization that she's been with for a couple of decades, the South Central Foundation. She's been joining us from Anchorage, Alaska. April, you, um, as the CEO and president of uh, the South Central Foundation, have been sharing with us uh I mean, just I, I appreciate, you know, a really bird's eye view of what's been happening. And the million dollar question from a lot of people is, well, does this all work as far as the metrics that payers and providers typically look at? Can you tell us a little bit about the outcomes, what you're seeing up there? Sure. H- happy to do that. So I think at the beginning of our journey, if you looked at clinical outcomes, any number you wanted to be high on, Alaska Native people were low on. Any number you wanted mm-hmm. to be low on, we were high on. And as we began designing our system and creating our balanced scorecard dashboard system of measures, I can remember when we targeted the 50th percentile. Like, let's just be mediocre. Wouldn't that be great? Um, as our system has matured, we are consistently hitting in HEDIS measures, the way we compare healthcare outcomes measures to others, consistently the 75th and sometimes the 90th percentiles outperforming wow. bunches of others in uh, U.S. healthcare system. Uh, when we think about our measures, we also look at things like our um, customer owner satisfaction rates mm. and our employee engagement, employee satisfaction rates. And I'll share with you, and I come from an HR background, it's really easy to do one or the other, to make your customers really happy at the expense of your employees or to make your employees really happy at the expense of your customers. Doing both at the same time is where the trick is. And if you don't mind, David, I'm going to share with you what I think the trick is in having um, sort of best in class employee satisfaction and customer satisfaction. And to me, it's to hire employees who are aligned with the mission and vision Hmm. and to create a system of care where they can do what they really got into this business to do, right? They can see how by being part of a team and by being in relationship and by sharing story, they can impact outcomes. Primary care team can know they're measured based on something like diabetic foot exams, and they can click on that measure and they can have an action list with phone numbers of people they need to reach out to Mm -hmm. um, to get that clinical outcome measure sort of up to par. And if you Um, hire wonderful people, you allow them to be in relationship with each other, you let them do work that's meaningful, they get to be in charge of the data that shows that meaning, you end up with this really wonderful system of delivery, high employee satisfaction. And because they're doing that work well, which is what we all want to do, we want to do our jobs well, Mm -hmm. you end up with a really great service for customer owners and high customer owner satisfaction. I love it. Yeah. Just the other thing I'll say about outcomes is There's this national award called Baldridge. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Mm -hmm. Five or six awards are given out every year, a couple in healthcare. And South Central Foundation is Alaska Native people, the only healthcare system 
in the US to win that award twice, really big deal. And that award is based on outcomes. When people come to look at our system, it's not because of the lovely customer ownership and relationship and shared responsibility philosophy. It's because that philosophy has produced uh, decreases in ER utilization, decreases in hospitalization, and really best-in-class HEDIS outcomes, et cetera. You know, one of the challenges, I think, for a lot of folks is they hear exciting stories like this, and then they listen to the fine print, if you can listen to fine print. And that is, uh, you know, they're hearing this journey. I mean, it's been a 40-year journey, and sometimes that's daunting. Um, but, of course, your organization started that journey 40 years ago, and, of course, everything didn't materialize overnight. What kind of messaging do you give to people from throughout the world as they come and they're inspired by what you're doing, but they also look and they see you know, 2,000 plus employees, they see the beautiful facilities, they hear about this long trajectory to get to where you've been. And sometimes um, you see people, the wind seem to go out of their sail because they say, well, how could we ever do anything like that? How do you empower people to move in the right direction? My answer to that, David, is really easy. It's to acknowledge that as leaders in healthcare, we don't know the right answers, that families mm. know best what families need. And when you really internalize that, that community knows best, that I'm going to be driven by the voice of community, then we no longer have to be the expert. Where our expertise is in sitting in relationship and designing a system that's driven by the community itself. And SCF is doing exciting things, but we have a lot of work ahead of us. And I don't know what that work should be. What I know is mm. that we have to be good at forever listening to community. What my grandbabies will need out of healthcare, I can't even see yet. But what I can work to do is create a system that's built on community-driven innovation, continuous whole system redesign so that we are asking community, what do you need? Read up designing based on their direction, giving them the feedback to say, here's what we think we heard from you and here's what we did. And knowing that through that cycle, there will always be a different thing that community needs. There is no right clinical service delivery model. The back end of that, owned by community, driven by community, our job is to listen and our job is to innovate, becomes the way that we meet community need in the future. So if someone is tuning in today, there may be a health director for a small tribe, and uh, maybe they haven't really uh, taken on you know, healthcare delivery. They're looking at stepping away from Indian Health Service and embracing self-determination, and they're saying, well, where do we start? I mean, do we start with you know, talking circles? I mean, if we're catching this model, what does the process look like? if someone want to go in that direction? Well, I think uh, my favorite work is in working with other Native people who are redesigning their systems. And so if you want to reach out to SCF, we'd be happy to figure out if there's a relationship there that can be created. But the number one thing I'll say is creating a system by which your community has voice and deciding as a principle that that, it's self-determination, right? It's what we love about self-determination, mm -hmm. deciding mm -hmm. that that, community's voice is going to drive what you do. And then being bold and willing to try different things, expecting that our workforce, that our providers on our teams are going to be driven by community and knowing that we're not going to get it. I mean, I, I didn't tell you all the things we've done wrong at SCF over the years where we've learned from it, right? The PDSA didn't mm -hmm. work. And those are just as powerful as not 
And that's self-determination. It's trying and evolving and continuing and being sure that we check ourselves, check ourselves in our power and give that power to community. I so appreciate the message of not being afraid to fail, because I think sometimes that's what uh, keeps people back from being innovative, from taking those risks. And I think, you know, if you talk about indigenous wisdom, as I talk with people throughout the country, as I interview them for the show, you know, we're often hearing that this is what our elders observed. I mean, this is their experience. And so if you don't have that shared experience, where do you get it? And you get it by doing, right? And sometimes doing doesn't always end up putting you where you want to be, but it gives you insight into maybe what you don't need to be doing, right? Yep, I agree completely. So you've been kind enough to really let us know that you're available personally to help people. I know that not necessarily if someone reaches out to your organization is, you know, April Kyle going to be the one who responds to an email or an initial inquiry. But April, you did mention a way for us to connect with your organization. Tell us again how best to just reach out if someone's representing a tribe or they're uh, representing any kind of a healthcare system. They say, it sounds wonderful what you're doing up there. I'd love to know more. How do they go about that? Sure, uh, David, we have a website called scfnuka.com, and we have a team of people in our NUCA Institute who manage all of our external relationships. People, uh, we just had a group, a indigenous group up here this week. They're there yesterday and today looking at our system. So people come and do site visits to see what we're doing. Um, they come to our conferences. We have a virtual winter conference. We have an in-person summer conference. Highly recommend the summer conference in person if you can. We have developed relationships with people thinking about healthcare, both tribal health and otherwise, uh, for decades. And so we have teams that go out and think about uh, compacting and system redesign and listening posts and Really, we've tackled big things like domestic violence and mm. child abuse and child neglect. And how do we think about those things as they relate to wellness? And so if there's a, a partnership to be had, we are, we're are happy to think about that. Beautiful. So I've jotted down SCF, the initials for South Central Foundation, then NUCA, N-U-K-A dot com. Have I got it? You got it. Yep. Okay. SCF, NUCA dot com. April Kyle president and CEO of the South Central Foundation. I know you're a very busy lady. Thank you so very much for sharing your enthusiasm, the, the success of your organization with us on today's edition of the broadcast. David, thanks for making time to listen to the innovation led by Alaska Native people of this region. Continued success to you and to all those in Alaska who are doing some really exciting pioneering work. Thank you. And thank you to each one of you who have joined us for today's edition of the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose, as always, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.